fine, church. If you uh, notice our scripture for today is John uh, chapter 7, 53, verse 53 through uh, 8, 11. If you'll be finding that, uh, we're going to be looking over that for the remainder of the uh, morning. And uh, you can follow along with me on that. Uh, before we get started, I'd like to uh, pray. So if you bow with me and pray. Father God, we just thank you that we can come to worship you. And we admit that we are weak in our effort to worship you, so we need your help. Pray that you would, uh, through your Holy Spirit, uh, give me the words to say, Lord, and the clarity to speak. And I pray that you would give uh, those that are listening ears to hear and minds to receive what uh, you're saying through your Holy Spirit, Lord. And uh, in all of this, we want to lift up Jesus and him be glorified. We ask this in, in his precious name. Amen. All right, John 53, or 7, 53, uh, 8 through 11. If you found that in your Bibles, you'll notice there... Uh, in those verses that uh, that whole section is in in brackets uh, and if you look at footnotes it says that uh, that section of scripture was not found in the original or older uh, uh, manuscripts so that uh, when I was given this to preach on that seemed to be a problem for me because I don't want to preach anything that's not scripture and so I decided I need to do a little study on that in itself to make sure that this is worthy to be preached. And because I want to preach what the Word of God truly is and uh, how did it even end up in Scripture. So we're going to do a little uh, class on that this morning before we get started on the Scripture so we'll know that we're doing the right thing. And believe me, I believe we're doing the right thing. So just give you the heads up on that. Uh, and really this section of Scripture is just an example to give you a little uh, uh, teaser, this is an example of Jesus mastering a situation. So I don't want to lose you on this technical part, but uh, and he uses literally he uses a judo technique uh, to uh, force his opponents in an argument and trap them and then turn it against them. So we're going to see that in in the in the uh, uh, scripture we read and. Uh, while he was doing all that, he stayed true to his mission of preaching the good news and seeking and saving the lost. So it's a pretty powerful little piece of scripture. But uh, to answer the questions about is it really part of uh, John's gospel, uh, I've looked at this for years, and there's several pieces of scripture that you'll see footnotes like that about it. And uh, I've always wondered, you know, well, how did they come up with it? Be, not, not being part of Scripture or being part of Scripture. So this study was good for me. Uh, and um, since we all believe that God's Scripture is, is His Word is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, uh, is this really one of those Scriptures that's worthy of that? And I, I truly believe it is. And that's a fair question. So the research I came up with uh, uh, was this, that most... New Testament scholars do not think that this is the original part of the Gospel of John, uh, and it was added centuries later. 
some of them are of recent past that say this was Don Carson from Trinity writes, despite the best efforts to prove that the narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence against them uh, in the modern English versions uh, are right to rule off or parenthesis off or uh, relegate it to a footnote. So he says, yep, no, it's, it's, it shouldn't be there in John's gospel. And then Bruce Metzger, a late great author on the text of the New Testament, said uh, evidence for the non-Johannian, that means book of John, origin of the periscope of the adulteress is overwhelming. Uh, so he's saying it's not supposed to be there. And then Leon Morris, another scholar, states uh, the text, textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is authentic as an authentic part of the Gospel of John. And uh, that's good that they say that, but we need the reasons. And here's some of the reasons. And I just, there's a bunch of them, and I kind of boil it down to, to these. And if you want more about it, I, I found a lot more about it, so if we, we could talk about it later. But just to give you a heads up. Number one, the narrative is missing from all the Greek manuscripts of John before the 15th century. Well, there's a big red flag right there. Uh, uh, number two, the earliest church fathers omitted this passage when they made comments about John and passed directly from John 7.52 to John 8.12. So they just deleted that part when they were commenting on the book of John. Uh, number three, the fact that the uh, text flows very nicely if you just read through John 7.52 and then pick up again at 8.12 and just leave out this story, uh, you can read the the passage without the story and it fits it just blends perfectly uh, and it actually makes more sense when you think about it because this is just kind of dropped in there uh, number four no eastern church father cites the passage before the 10th century uh, when dealing with this gospel so uh, there's another thing uh, when the story starts it appears in the manuscript copies of when, when it's story starts to appear in the manuscript copies of the gospel of john it shows up in three different places which is kind of a weird thing uh three places were the after john 736 after 744 and after 2125 so it's they just kind of they liked it when they put it in these places and it even shows up in the gospel of luke after 2128 and really that's probably the best place for it chronologically and we can talk about that in a little bit uh, and then style and vocabulary that's used in this scripture is unlike any the rest of John, the Gospel of John uh, has. Uh, it's not like this. It's just like a, a paragraph that doesn't fit in the book because it doesn't look like it's written by John. For example, when John talks about Jewish leaders in the rest of the book of John, he never pairs the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, you see that in the rest of the Synoptic Gospels, but you don't see it except for this one place in the book of John. So that's an evidence. Uh, so should this narrative be considered scripture if it's not supposed to be in the book of John? Uh, and there's evidence to lead us to conclude that this passage was most likely not a part of the original text of John, so we should it even be scripture? Well, let's don't turn this off yet because uh, there's some good reasons for us to study and embrace this passage. 
Uh, Westcott, a uh, commentator uh, commentating on this passage, says, Yet it is beyond a doubt, beyond doubt, any authentic fragment of apostles. Uh, yet it is beyond an authentic, well, my typing's terrible. It's beyond a doubt that this is not an authentic fragment of apostolic tradition or a story that was passed down by word of mouth from the early church. Uh, and he, he's saying it's a true story. It was just passed down and didn't make it into Scripture until later. It contains uh, uh, the disciples were passing this down as an actual historic event that happened in Christ's life. And the disciples were, uh, it contains no teaching that contradicts the rest of Scripture. That's a proof. Uh, and the picture paints uh, a picture of a wise, loving, forgiving Savior that is consistent with the rest of the Bible's portrait of Jesus and the rest of John's portrait of Jesus. Uh, the story was likely, most likely a historical piece of oral tradition that circulated in parts of the Western Church, and eventually it was written down and found in our later manuscripts. So that's how it ended up there, and where it ended up is more questionable to me than whether it's for real. Uh, I lean towards the Luke 21, 28 uh, because of the chronological aspects of where it should be in Scripture. This happened uh, when we, as we're reading here at the Feast of Tabernacles, which was six months before the uh, Passion Week, and I believe this really should have been in the Passion Week for two or three reasons. One reason, uh, Jesus was in Jerusalem and going up to the Mount of Olives to uh, sleep every night, and everybody else was going home. It says that in our scripture. And then uh, another reason, uh, it doesn't say that anywhere else in the Synoptic Gospels that he was staying on the Mount of Olives except for during the uh, uh, week of Passover. And uh, and then, so that, that lends me to think that it was probably the later date instead of the earlier date. So just a little uh, information for you there. So should we teach or preach this narrative? And I say yes for a couple reasons. Number one, we cannot absolutely discount that this is a real event. And all the history tends to lead us to believe it was a real event. And the number two thing is, and uh, as I've studied this, I really think this is the Maybe the number one reason the narrative is so rich in content, it's worthy to be taught. So, uh, so there is the groundwork. You can't you can reset your clocks because we're going to start from here. My time starts now, so y'all get ready for this. I promise I won't be too long. As a matter of fact, I won't be long at all. Uh, so let's look at John chapter seven fifty three through uh, eight eleven. And uh, we'll just read it real quick. And everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and he began to teach them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, having set her in the midst. And he said, and they and they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act now in the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman what do you say 
And they were saying this, testing him, in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. And when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when, he, when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman, and where she was in the midst. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. Go, go your way. From now on, sin no more. There's our scripture. And uh, this is a story that's not primarily of an adulteress and some hypocritical leaders who cynically used her to attack Jesus, although they did, and she did. The central figure of this gripping drama is of this gripping drama of immorality, hypocrisy, and forgiveness is, as in all of John's gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. And from it, we can see a fourfold picture of Jesus, and this is, this is so good as it emerges. It reveals his humility, his wisdom, his indictment, and his forgiveness. So let's look at those pictures. Uh, his humility. Uh, but G, uh, everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach. Teach them. Because it's disputed where this should fit in the chronology of Jesus' life, uh, they actually closely, these verses parallel closely the Luke account in 21, 37, 38 there, uh, which is during the Passion Week, as I said earlier. So this is six months later than what, what we were looking at here in John 7 and 8. So Jesus was evidently in Jerusalem, uh, and uh, since everyone went to their homes and he went to the Mount of Olives, that location has to be there, and he spent the night there. Now, whether he slept on the mountain itself uh, somewhere uh, or he went to uh, Martha and Mary and Lazarus' home in Bethany, which was on the other side of the Mount of Olives, on the slope of the Mount of Olives, we don't know, uh, but that's not the point. The point here is he had no home to go to, no home of his own. And uh, we're... He is the creator and sustainer of the world, and he's homeless. And this is a striking illustration of Jesus' humility and condescension uh, of his incarnation. In Philippians 2, 7, 8, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He was born and wrapped in clothes and placed in a manger, Luke uh, 2.7. Uh, we see that he he told his follower, a would-be follower, foxes have holes 
birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, Matthew 8.20. So we see that simply and without fanfare, early in the morning, Jesus uh, comes again into the temple to, to teach. He doesn't have an angelic herald or perform some miracles to draw a crowd, but such was the power of his teaching that uh, all the people were coming to hear him. Uh, and uh, he humbly and freely offered the teaching in the typical rabbinical way or style by sitting down in the temple and he just began to teach the people. This is totally different from the way that the Jewish rabbis would try to uh, impress crowds uh, of the day and uh, it's really different for some for many who teach that you see uh, teaching scripture today on TV and and the such where they are looking for men to think highly of them and to uh, grieve their palms with money probably uh, but Jesus wasn't looking for that and he wasn't looking for uh, himself to be lifted up he was just teaching and of course now one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord but not today not on not on this occasion uh, so we see his humility and then next we see his wisdom and this is the the meat of this or the first big bite of meat anyway and that's verses uh, in 8, 3 through 8. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now the law of Moses commands a stone such a woman. What do you say? And they were saying this, testing him, in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Uh, so right in the middle of Jesus' teaching, he's interrupted by the scribes and Pharisees. These two groups are often... Uh, together in the Synoptic Gospels, but uh, it's, this is the only place in the Book of John, uh, or the Gospel of John, and uh, that's why I was saying it probably fits better in that in some of the in the Book of Luke, uh, where they had placed it at some time. But the scribes or the lawyers uh, were the experts in, ter in interpretation of the law, and. And they were usually, but not always, Pharisees. So they they hung together a lot. And then, uh, and though, and the Pharisees, along with the uh, Sadducees, Zealots, and the Essenes, were the four major sects of Judaism in Jesus' day. And uh, the Pharisees were noted chiefly for their strict adherence to the Mosaic Law and their oral traditions, which we've been studying about that uh, over the past years how they would come against Jesus because they thought they were the they had it all under control uh, their number was about 6,000 at this time that's according to the historian Josephus so there was a good number of them to uh, to come against Jesus and uh, they were the dominant influence among the Jewish people and with the exception of Nicodemus uh, uh, 
they were hostile towards Jesus anytime they would show up in the uh, book of uh, John. Uh, they they viewed the problem they had was they viewed uh, Jesus' popularity with with alarm, uh, fearing that he would that they would lose their influence with the people, and that's what they uh, lived for was that, uh, and fearing also retaliation from the uh, Roman government if Jesus' followers were to start a revolt, because then they would lose their uh, influence with. Uh, under the power of the Roman government. So uh, so trying to uh, impale Jesus on the horns of a dilemma, as you saw my <laughs> uh, title, they brought uh, the woman who was caught in adultery, uh, and the scribes and Pharisees barged into the, into the teaching session, set her down in the center of the court, so here they are, and there's Jesus, and they set her right in front of, in between them, and uh, they mockingly say, Teacher or Rabbi, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, the very act, demanding a ruling from him, saying, Now the law of Moses says to stone such a woman. What then do you say? And that last part of that uh, sentence there, what then do you say, is emphatic in the Greek. And it could be translated, You, what do you say? So they're, they're pressing him. And, or, Jesus, what's your opinion about this? Uh, the seventh commandment forbids adultery. That's in Exodus uh, 20.14 and Deuteronomy 5.18. And Leviticus 20.16 prescribes the death penalty for adultery. It says, if there's a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. As a matter of fact, Jesus upheld the Old Testament condemnation of adultery in Matthew 5, 27, and 19, 18. And even further, he made the prohibition stronger by condemning not only the physical act of adultery, but also the lustful attitude that conceives it, which he talked about in Matthew 5, 28. Uh, so for... From purely a legal standpoint, these men were correct in saying the woman deserved to die. And uh, But if you look at the circumstances, they suggest that they had something uh, else in mind. Adultery by, by the very nature involves two people, yet the Pharisees were accusing only the woman. Uh, where's the man? Uh, those who apprehended the woman had certainly seen the man since He'd been caught in the very act. Uh, why didn't they arrest him and bring him too? The law demands, we just read it, uh, that both parties be executed. Uh, and uh, if justice is what they wanted, there was no need for them to even bring him to Jesus. They had a, uh, He was not a judge or on the Sanhedrin. Uh, they should have just taken her to their own court for a trial in such an open and shut case, it would it would have been a uh, an easy case. There's no need to consult a rabbi because uh, the evidence was there in hand. They didn't have to have a ruling on it. So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the uh, scribes and Pharisees' motive was obvious. Uh, they were merely using the woman in an attempt to trap Jesus. Uh, 
there was something far more important to them than seeing justice be done. They were testing Jesus so that they might have a grounds to accuse him. They were trying to get Jesus to say something that would destroy him. Uh, in this situation, so they, they, they thought they had Jesus between a rock and a hard place. If he objected to them, to them stoning her, he would be guilty of, of opposing the Mosaic law, and that would discredit him uh, uh, and his claim to be the Messiah. On the other hand, if he agreed with them that she should be stoned, then he'd lose his reputation of being compassionate towards sinners. And furthermore, the Jewish, the, uh, Jewish leaders could report him to the, the Roman government and having, uh, as having instigated a, an execution uh, which was in defiance of the Romans' authority. Uh, they had the on, only ones with power to perform an execution when, in their rule. So uh, they thought they had him. Uh, and they, uh, but you think about it, really the challenge that's brought up by the scribes and Pharisees raises a deeper question. Uh, how are divine justice and mercy harmonized? Uh, God's holy. Uh, we read in 1 Peter 1, 5, and 15, and 16. And then his holy law, his law is holy and his commandment is holy and righteous and good in Romans 7, 12. Uh, the law knows nothing of forgiveness in Romans 3, 20. And the soul that sins sure, will surely die, Ezekiel 18, 4. So the law brings about wrath, and that's Romans 5, 4, 15. So how, how does God forgive without violating his holy law? And the answer is, through the Lord Jesus Christ. His sacrificial death fully satisfies the demands of God's justice. For what the law could not do, weak as it is through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Romans 8, 3. Those who put their faith in him are justified as a gift by his grace through redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as the propitiation in his blood through faith, Romans 3, 24 and 25. He bore our sins on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. Jesus' divine justice and mercy harmonized. He must, because he satisfied the death and paid the penalty, uh, because his sacrificial death paid the penalty for sins of all who believe in him, God can, can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, Romans 3.26. Christ's loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That's Psalm 85.10. God poured out his wrath on Jesus so he can pour out his grace and mercy on those who believe. The dramatic scene in the temple courtyard had reached a climax now. The woman 
her sin publicly exposed, was humiliated, terrified and about to be stoned. The scribes and Pharisees were jubilant, thinking, man, we caught Jesus in an impossible, in an impossible dilemma. The crowd was hushed, watching how Jesus would react. But for the moment, surprisingly, he did nothing. Seeming oblivious to what was going on, Jesus stooped down, and with his finger, he began to write in the dirt. Uh, and the word for write is, is where we get graph from, and it can be write, it can be draw, it can it can be just doodle. Uh, and so I've looked at, I've heard a lot of people preach this. I've uh, heard some good ones, and there's a lot of speculation on what he was writing, doodling, drawing. But when it boils down to it, we don't know. We can guess, but we don't know. And you know what? You know what it is? No, you don't, because it's not written down here in the Word of God. We don't know. It could have been uh, specific sins that the uh, accusers had made themselves. It could be the names of them beside the names of people that they committed adultery with or had lust over. It could have been the Ten Commandments. We just don't know. But one thing we do know is what Jesus was doing. He was giving the scribes and the Pharisees time to become anxious and puzzled during that silence. And though they thought they had him, uh, uh, and now he was uh, not answering them, so they had to persist in asking him. But Jesus, being the master of the moment, remained silent and allowed them to really revel in their hate and hypocrisy so that they just kept on and on and on asking him, just trying to get the answer out of him because they were anxious to see, see if they could catch him. And uh, at last, Jesus straightens up, and no doubt he gives them a piercing look to eat as he glanced at all of them. Uh, and, he, and, and all the while saying, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to cast a stone at her. And after making this startling and unexpected statement, he calmly stoops back down again and starts writing on the ground. Uh, just said nothing give them a little more time to think about what's going on and the Lord replied reply was simple but yet profound in that statement he took care of all of their accusations and all their plans he upheld the law since he did not not didn't deny the woman's guilt he had broadened the scope of the law's power by exposing the sins of all the accusers and it avoided the charge of instigating an execution in violation of Roman law and put the responsibility back on the accusers and finally it was merciful and spared the woman from being stoned for her sin Jesus masterful answer neither minimized the woman's guilt nor denied the law's sanctity uh, and at the same time, 
it cut the ground out from under the scribes and Pharisees by re- revealing that they were not worthy to be her judges and executioners. What wisdom in such few words. But why not our Lord Jesus? He could, in an economy of words, say more than we could say in books. And he did, he did right there. So that was his wisdom. Now his indictment is in verse 8, uh, or in chapter 8, verse 9, just the first part, A. Uh, it says, And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, uh, beginning with the older ones. After they heard the Lord's devastating reply, the stunned scribes and Pharisees began to go out one by one. Uh, and some manuscripts even add to that being convicted by their conscience, which is certainly implied in this because that's why they would be going out. Uh, notice that the accusers exited beginning with the older ones. Uh, this provides a look into our human nature uh, as the older and more seasoned ones were probably the first to feel to assimilate their defeat in what he's done in their minds and then realize it was pointless to continue. That's one possibility. But another one is they were probably more keenly aware of their sin because they had a longer life to accumulate sins to their account. And uh, their conscience convicted them uh, first before the younger ones, but it came around to all of them. The irony of this is they came to put Jesus to shame, but they left ashamed. And they came to condemn the woman, but left condemned. Uh, Unfortunately, their indictment and sense of guilt did not lead them to repentance. Just like many of you hear and feel the convicting conviction of truth in the law, they hardened their hearts and they turned away from him, not being open to the forgiveness of the gospel. So there's the indictment. Now, next is his forgiveness. Uh, and that's 8, 9b through 11. He was left alone and the woman where she was in the midst. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. Well, the scribes and Pharisees leave the scene, and there they leave Jesus along with the woman who just remained standing there where she was in the center of the court. She could have skipped, slipped on out while they were slipping out. He was down writing on the, on the ground anyway. Uh, uh, but the text doesn't, uh, and the text doesn't say what happened to the crowd because the focus is only on Jesus and the woman. Uh, so she's standing there. And for the first time in the narrative, someone addresses the woman instead of talking about her, talk to her. And it's Jesus. Straightening up from stooping down in the dirt, he said, Woman, where are they? Did not one condemn you? Did no one condemn you? And the woman is, uh, res- the term woman there is respectful term. Jesus has changed it from them disrespecting her to him respecting her. As a matter of fact, the word, word woman there is the same word he used to speak of his mother when he, he said, uh, talked uh, talked about her in John um, two forty three when she told him to uh, 
he changed the water to wine. And then in 1926, uh, he, caught, he addresses her as a woman. So this is a, a term of, uh, a respectful term that he was using to talk to her. And he lets her know that there's something different now from what the situation has changed. With her accusers uh, gone, the ones that were uh, shaming her, he's now giving her some respect. And with them gone, uh, she says, no one, Lord. Now that's different too. Uh, the scribes and Pharisees were in control of their lives and hanging on to their sin as they left. Uh, they may have been convicted, but they weren't converted. They didn't. They didn't uh, go the, the step further. Uh, they ran off and hid with their sin, but she was drawn uh, to stay there with Jesus, even though her sin was out there for the world to see. She was at the end of her rope, proverbially. Uh, she, and there was nowhere else for her to turn except to the Lord Jesus. And so uh, she confesses him as Lord right there on the spot. Exercising his divine prerogative to forgive sin, Jesus said to her, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. She was drawn to stay with Jesus and got forgiveness and grace. And notice what else she got a new life. He commanded her to go and sin no more. You know, the only way for anybody to go and sin no more is when you get a new life. Because our nature is to sin, right? So, I think we, we just saw the conversion of that lady. Well, we've seen four pictures. We've seen his, uh, his humility, uh, his wisdom, his indictment, and his forgiveness. And I'm going to give you a fifth picture. It's not uh, per se of Jesus, but we can draw it from this narrative. The law was given uh, to be our schoolmaster. It's there to convict the conscience and will never cause us, uh, and it will either cause us to run and hide with our sin like the Pharisees did, or to be drawn to Jesus for forgiveness and grace and new life, like this woman caught in adultery. The question for each of us today here is, are you aware of your sin and how it separates you from God? Are you tired of running and hiding with your guilt? Are you ready to turn from that sin and come to Jesus as your Lord and Savior? The invitation is always open. Come. The Spirit says come. If Jesus is drawing you to come, we're going to be, I'll be up front after we finish here. And I'd love to talk to you about it. Or if you want to talk to Nathan or David Johnson or David Wagner, we're always available for you. Uh, please don't hesitate. If the Spirit is speaking to you about coming to Jesus as Lord, come. Let's pray.